Hi, everyone, and welcome to the first of a series of events we're running this week to mark the fifth anniversary of the referendum. Today, our event is on public opinion and Brexit. We have a wonderful panel to discuss the issues around public opinion, starting with Kelly Beaver, who's Managing Director at Ipsos Mori Public Affairs. Uh, we've also got Rob Ford, Professor of Political Science, University of Manchester, who will now wave his book at you. There we go. All good bookshops, etc. Our own Paula Surridge, Deputy Director of the UK in a Changing Europe. And finally, Bobby Duffy, who is Director of the Policy Institute at King's College London. Bobby, are you preparing to wave something at us? I, I wonder for a moment if you were about to... <laughs> And the way we're going to structure this is slightly differently to normal in the sense that Ipsos and Bob's Murray today, in fact, tomorrow, is it today that it goes public, Kelly? Today. Have, have released some new uh, opinion polling around Brexit. And Kelly's going to present the results of that to us briefly first, and then we'll go into our usual conversational format. As ever, please, A, send your questions in on Slido and vote for the ones you would like me to pose to the panel, and I will try and do so. But Kelly, over to you. Thank you. So just take you a quick canter through some of the latest data on public opinion and Brexit, five years on from the 2016 referendum vote. So firstly, how much do the public care about Brexit at this point in time? Well, it's changed. It's been a bit of a roller coaster by way of public opinion since 2016, mostly punctuated by key events where public interest in Brexit took a bit of a surge. So this is some data, first of all, just from our issues index. We've been running it for over 50 years, unprompted asking the British public what they think are the most important issues facing Britain today. The pink line is the EU and Brexit, and you can see it reached a little peak in May 2016, which it far surpassed by the time of the general election in 2019. And again, we had a little peak after quite a downward spiral, uh, a little peak again at the end of 2020. And now it is very much moving into a second order issue in the British psyche, overtaken by things very much like COVID, but now also the economy and the NHS. How does the reality for the public compare to what their expectations were of Brexit? And there has been a lot of coverage in the media and news, stories around empty shelves and lorries packed up at, at Dover. And actually, when you ask the public about what impact they've noticed in their daily lives, most of them will tell you that they haven't really seen a difference yet. We see six in 10 say it's made no difference to their daily lives. But a significant minority of three in 10 say that it has made their daily life worse. And when you look at who's saying that, it does tend to be people who have voted Remain, also voted Labour in 2019. They tend to be graduates, higher socioeconomic class as well. So what about other people? Have we noticed other people around us whose job or business has been positively or negatively affected? Well, in the main, no, but a quarter do say that they know somebody personally whose job or business has been negatively affected by Brexit. And who are they? Again, a very similar profile to those who say they've had a negative effect on their lives. Overall, just under half think Brexit is going pretty much as they expected. We find Remain voters being more negative than those that voted Leave. And overall, around half say it's just as we expected it was going to be. British public do recognise that negotiations are not over and that we're still very much in the early stages. 
Only one in seven think that the future relationship with the EU is now mostly decided and is hardly going to change over the next few years. But we have as many as over two in five who think that there are still many important issues that need finalised and there are going to be lots more negotiations. Those who voted Remain are much more likely to say that they see there being a significant period of negotiation yet to come. And in the middle, we have around a quarter who think there are some important areas that are left to decide, but we have the broad outlines of what our future relationship with the EU will be. And of course, much of the conversation throughout the transition period did relate to the industry in the UK and the different sectors and how they would be impacted by Brexit. And when we asked Britons, this data is from June, um, we also asked it back in March, it hasn't changed very much since then. When you ask Britons today whether they think that Britain's exit from the EU is going to have a positive, negative or no impact on those sectors, for all of the sectors we see more people saying a negative impact than a positive. And up top around negative impact are the sectors of transportation and haulage, agriculture, automotive and of course hospitality and leisure as well. But Brexit hasn't been happening in a vacuum, and in particular over the last year and a half, the British ability and the UK's ability to flex its sovereignty has really been in the public eye, as the UK government has grappled with the issues around the pandemic. And what that has done is given people something to be quite positive about as well. Uh, we have seen a positive response specifically around the vaccination effort in the UK and how that compares to how Britain may have performed within the EU. So overall, Britons do think that Brexit has made Britain's response to COVID-19 more better. People think more, more people think better than worse. Uh, again, strongly felt amongst Leave supporters, but even amongst Remain, we still see more saying it has been better than worse. And it is very much the vaccination programme and people's perception of that that is driving their views on how the UK has been handling the pandemic. They, haven't, they do not perceive that the UK has performed better than the EU on things like national lockdowns, which we know have been very controversial. And whilst we do agree about some things like the fantastic work of the NHS and the vaccinations programme, there are some areas where we still see that Brexit divisions have endured, and that really is around some of the, the identities uh, piece. So Brexit identities, whilst they are still there, they have softened, and we can see evidence of this in the polling. So in 2019, almost 55% would say they very strongly would associate as being a Remainer or a Lever. That's down as, as low as now 35% in 2021. So there are, some, there are some softening of those identities. But when we look at how Remain and Leave voters feel about those from the other camp, we still see a similar level of animosity and coldness of feeling. So this is a feeling thermometer, and you can have a look here at how Leave supporters feel, cold or negative, warm or positive, about those who voted an alternative way in 2016. And you can see just in the yellow box that Remain voters in 2019 and 2021 felt the same way about Leave supporters, and again, similarly uh, for those who, who were Leave thinking about Remain. So that kind of animosity and strength of feeling hasn't really shifted. But we can't think about it as two binary camps. And just today, we've also released uh, work looking at the more, uh, a more diverse set of personas around Brexit. We call them Brexit, Brexit tribes in 2021. And we look at those uh, seven different groups, from those who are more strongly remain to those who are most strongly leave. 
with a series of groups also in the middle. Um, and it's really important to not look uh, at Brexit tribes in a binary uh, remain leave way. Down one end of our spectrum, we do have those who are mostly strong remain. They are liberal remainers. They're very culturally liberal. They tend to be graduates, higher income groups, and they've also would be able to cite a number of positives, um, with, sorry, no positives as a result of exiting the EU. Next to them, we have our anxious remainers who are very pro-remain, but they're also culturally moderate and quite pragmatically motivated. And so when you ask them about whether there are positives as a result of Brexit, they can cite a small number of positives as a result. At the other end of the spectrum, we have our traditionalist leavers. They're most strongly leave and they're very culturally conservative. They also tend to be not graduates, uh, older, lower income, and also based in the North and Midlands. They can see no downsides to Brexit as it stands today. And then slightly moving inwards, you find our globalist leavers. So they're pro-leave, pro-globalization, but more economically right-wing. And then in the middle, we have these three groups who have less strength, strong identities towards uh, Brexit or Remain. Our young middle Britain who are tending to lean Remain, but to not have a strong Brexit identity and similar attitudes to uh, the average, average person in Britain today. They are younger, they are uh, working, they are average income, and they also are more, more likely to be women. Are politically disengaged then, right smack in the centre, which is about 13% uh, of the overall population, quite disengaged with Brexit, politics, mostly uh, weak identities and attitudes around Brexit. They tend to be lower income and social grade as well, and also more likely to be female. And then our last group, which is the entrepreneurial young. This is a smaller group who don't have a very strong identity with Brexit or Remain but they do economically lean to the right um, and they do tend to be more male than female. So it's just useful to think about uh, a much wider variety of viewpoints on Brexit remain and also those who are more disengaged in the centre. And when we plot our Brexit tribes by cultural and economic values, you can see how the remain and leave groups themselves are quite different on some of those cultural and economic values because not just, not just being on the same side, it doesn't mean that your views are all the same. It's partly underpinned by values as well. So, for example, looking at our liberal remainers versus our anxious remainers, liberal remainers much more economically left than our anxious remainers, though they are still left, but they are certainly more culturally liberal. The anxious remainers just tipping into the cultural conservative uh, camp there. And what that means is when you look at some of the uh, value statements, things like political correctness is a good thing, you're much more likely to see the liberal remainers agreeing with that sentiment. 64% of them would agree with that by comparison to only 16% in our anxious remainers group. So even that group are quite divided on some values. And then again, when you look at our traditionalist leavers versus our global leavers, traditionalist leavers much more culturally conservative than global leavers, Global leavers more economically right than traditionalist leavers who are more moderate on the economy. And, and what we see there again on value sentiments is quite a bit of difference. So a good statement to test them on are things like having a mix of people in your area makes it a more enjoyable place to live. And with our globalist leavers, they're much more likely to state that's the case. 56% of them would agree with that statement by comparison to only 14% in the traditionalist leavers camp. 
And of course, there are also alignments across the fence. So we see uh, values alignments between our anxious remainers and our traditionalist leavers, particularly around sentiments like things are, were better in the past. And similarly, alignments across the divide between our liberal remainers and our globalist leavers on sentiments like globalisation is good for Britain. So some key takeaways, Brexit hasn't gone away, people know that, but some of the personal impacts they expected to materialise haven't quite materialised yet. Secondly, perceptions of the expected impacts and also the success of Brexit are very underpinned still by those original Brexit identities. Thirdly, many of the underlying value-driven divides which did underpin Brexit are still there and visible in society. And lastly, don't forget, there are just as many people in the middle ground who don't have very strong Brexit identities and can see both sides of the arguments and their judgment can still change depending on what happens next. Thanks very much. Thanks ever so much, Kelly. That was, that was really fascinating. And now, very predictably, panel, I've completely forgotten the order I suggested with you to you to start with, and I'm going to start with Paula. Uh, so apologies, Paula. Uh, simply because that that uh, diagram of Brexit tribes sort of reminded me of a lot of the sort of academic work you've done around this, the sort of the four squares and where people place themselves in that. As as a political scientist, sort of who's been very very engaged in talking about studying and writing about elections, was there anything about the, the, the most recent findings that surprised you in terms of movement or was that pretty much where you'd expect things to be now? It was pretty much where I expected things to be but I think there were some useful things in that um, sort of space chart that that we could pull out. I've been saying for a while that it's important to understand these divides within the um, leave and remain side and um, Kelly's presentation really brought those out and I think we can we can look there particularly at the anxious remain group. Um, obviously you can't do this with your data, you haven't got the sample size to do so, but I wouldn't be surprised if we found a good number of them in Chesham and Amersham, for example. Um, so I think there are some um, key things there that can be brought out in terms of the, of the political implications. And also I think that division between the liberal remain and the anxious remain is something that starts to unpack the talk around a progressive alliance and actually where, where there are some really big differences between some of these groups in terms of their values, in terms of their, their hopes and expectations um, that are much more difficult to bring together under a single umbrella. So I think in some ways it really underlines that point that trying to fit everybody into one of two groups is not really getting at the divisions and the complexity that underlines um, British politics. It also helps us understand, of course, um, thinking, thinking of some of Bobby's work about why we perhaps haven't completely polarised in the way some people predicted because these underlying divides help to anchor people into different, different positions. And actually on that then, turning to you, Bobby, because I know the Policy Institute has done some really, really interesting work on culture wars and stuff, and you've got events coming up that I recommend very strongly to those watching. So I suppose the first question is, do Kelly's findings tally with what you came up with from your own work? And secondly, does this, I suppose one of the interesting questions is, how long does this linger? Does this sort of cultural divide that became prominent, even though, and I'll come on to Rob to talk about this in a minute, it existed well before, does it retain its prominence if people aren't talking about Brexit anymore? Do we find other things to keep that divide going looking forward? 
Yeah, that's a really good point. I, yes, I mean, I, incredibly helpful findings, I think, from Kelly and, and obviously Ipsos involved in this culture wars work that we've been doing as well, which has been really helpful. Um, uh, and I, I think it goes back to lots of the points that Paula, you, Rob, have made that the Brexit has been vitally important in both revealing and then reinforcing a much longer standing cultural and economic division. Um, it gave shape and identity to something that didn't have that before quite so easily in a, in a British context. So it's not really, I don't think it's really even the right way to think about whether we're moving on. It's like a vital part of a process that uh, Brexit was crucial to solidifying. And then it, it, it's a, a vital part of division that keeps moving on. And that's what the culture wars work is trying to understand. We, we have imported this culture wars narrative wholesale from the US. In, in 2017, there were only 60 articles in the UK media about culture wars in the UK. And in 2020, there were 534 of those articles talking about this, not, not really questioning the existence, more just talking about it like it's a fact. And I think it's really important to, to recognize, put that against the academic work on what, how do you define culture wars? How do you define, define these cultural uh, divisions? Uh, and in, in that context, it's about implacable conflict and mega identities. That's the kind of work of Lydiana Mason and Ezra Klein talking about these mega identities you can activate. Mm. And that is what Brexit and the Leave Remain identity is a crucial part of that, moving towards that, that mega identity. And um, worth, no, worth noting, and this picks up on Kelly's uh, great uh, research, is that even in the US, there's a great deal of controversy about whether it's quite as polarized or divided as you think. There's a lot of similar kind of evidence of an exhausted majority in the US. Um, so we, we've got to we we've got this sense in which we are both too worried and not worried enough, I think, in this. We're too worried in the sense that we get fi fixated on the extremes. And that's the one, the noisy extremes make a, it draw a lot of our attention. And it's great, Kelly's work and other work uh, shows that there's a lot of people in the middle, there's a lot more nuance and subtlety in this. And, and then the sense in which we're not worried enough is that because that itself, that fixation on the extremes is part of a process, culture wars, and the move towards these cultural divisions is not an outcome or a single event, it's a process. It's very difficult to get out of once you, you've started down that, that road. Mm -hmm. And that's the point here is it's what does it evolve into? Because the just final point on the culture wars work is, yes, you can see that softening of identities on in Brexit, particularly on the leave side as uh, remains still, the losing side is still more invested in this in some sort of way. But we looked across six different issues, BLM, trans, empire, uh, COVID, all of those types of things. And there's more differentiation. If you think of it in a polarization model of do you identify with your side, differentiate yourself from the other side, and do you start to see realities differently? You can see in each of those issues, there's bigger gaps between the two sides than there is on Brexit. So you can see this burgeoning into lots of different sorts of areas. And that's that, I think, is why still vital to understand where we are on Brexit and leave and remain identities, and then be thinking about these segmentations. And, and, and this is a process, not an outcome or a single event. Interesting. Now, India haven't lost a wicket since we went live, so I assume <laughs> the panel are happy to stay here till seven o'clock because this is obviously a lucky <laughs> charm. Uh, Rob, I mean, one of the things, one of the many things you do fantastically in that book is you draw the link between these identities and electoral outcomes and how these these identities shape those electoral outcomes. And I was wondering, I mean, partly on the back of 
you know, you've been watching uh, recent by-elections, but partly too on the basis of Kelly's findings. Do you think there's anything that reveals that the Brexit identities that are going to have less of an impact on our politics going forward at the moment? Or do you think they're going to continue to weigh in precisely the same ways that they've weighed since that referendum? Is there, is there any evidence either way? Well, I, th I think it's very interesting because the, the slide that immediately leapt out to me from Kelly's slides was the slide showing that the intensity of Brexit partisanship had faded quite substantially. And that had been something I had been wanting to see whether it would happen once mm. the first stage of negotiations had um, ended. Yet on the flip side of that, the very next slide was the thermometer scores, which showed no change at all. And that's really interesting because identity politics, social identity politics is always a coin with two sides. There's attachment to in-groups and there's antipathy to the out-group. Yeah. And what we're seeing so far with Brexit is that attachment to the in-group might be fading a bit. It's not so important to people that they leave or they remain because the argument is not as intense as it was a few years ago. But their antipathy towards the out-group and their understanding of what the out-group is, coming back to Bobby's point about the particular issues, one of the big lasting features, I think, of Brexit is that it has helped people to put a name on who their enemies are. Leavers know that Ramonas are their enemies and attach a whole bunch of stereotypes to that. Remainers know that Leavers are their enemies and attach a whole bunch of stereotypes to that. And that's really very powerful. And that, I think, helps to explain the second half of the story, which is that when we've seen the, particularly the, the big wave of local elections recently, there was really not very much evidence that the electoral power of people's behaviour in 2016 was waning as yet. Um, we continued to see the Leave vote consolidating behind the Conservatives in places that voted very heavily Leave, and we continued to see Remain places behaving rather differently. The main asymmetry, which was also there in 2019 in place of the Conservatives' advantage, is that Leave voters tend to gather together under one flag, whereas Remain voters tend to split across several different banners. But what they are, as Rob Colville put it recently in a piece on the uh, uh, Chesham and Amersham election, is that it's Conservative versus anti-conservative and in remain leaning places anti-conservative is a thing um, and indeed there's there's a case to be made that we might actually see an increase in the disruptive capacity of Brexit in uh, the remain parts of the country because and Paul has written very insightfully on this the the, the thing that was keeping conservative remainers in the Conservative coalition was that although they didn't like a Leave Conservative Party, they liked the idea of a Corbyn, uh, Corbyn in Downing Street even less. So they they basically took took the the the, the lesser of two evils, but the, the second of those evils is gone now. And a, a, a Surrey-born barrister and director of public prosecutions doesn't arouse the kind of antipathy in Southern Tory remainers that Jeremy Corbyn clearly did. So, number one, sense of um, they are different to us and we don't like them very much. Number two, as Bobby noted, that maps onto lots of issues. Number three, incidentally, I didn't mention that before, the Conservatives have a strong incentive to keep trying yeah. to put those issues onto the agenda because that's what unifies their 2019 coalition. But number four, there's a growing risk to them of putting that on the agenda regularly because it's going to be easier for their Remain voters 
to uh, go to the exit if they start to see the Conservatives as primarily a party that, that are uh, by, for and of um, their Brexit outgroup. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, I think that Brexit, we're not done with Brexit on the politics front at all. I, mean, I know that Paula made a lot of new friends on Twitter for making that point about Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, so that was all very great. But keep your questions coming in. Actually, there's one, one other thing that I just want to, I mean, any of you might want to come back on this, which is on that issue salience uh, chart that Kelly showed. It's interesting, the economy is nudging up actually quite a lot. And I mean, what happens, you know, when we get to the autumn and furlough is ended and presumably that economy line keeps going up quite strongly and Brexit therefore gets pushed even further into the background. Is that the sort of thing that leads these things to, to that, that sort of makes the, the sort of identity stuff less important and politics feel a bit more familiar or, or, or not? I know it's an impossible question, so you're, you're welcome just to riff about what you think on this. But it, it, is, it strikes me that it is the big, the big political question of this parliament is... I... Yeah, go ahead. Absolutely. Sorry, I, I went last, so I was worried about going again. But um, the salience chart I thought was interesting because of the issue that was missing off of it, which wouldn't have been missing off of it a couple of years ago, which was immigration. Immigration, yeah. And if I, that had shown a bigger chart, Rob, you would have seen it. It's <laughs> way down the bottom. No, so around the time of the referendum, it was over about fifty percent of people would have picked it, and now it's way, way down, sub ten. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But the the reason that's interesting is because on the other issues, economy and NHS. Uh, it, it looks like we're moving to an issue agenda that looks like the early 2010s. But the difference is that immigration is off the agenda and the environment is moving on to the agenda. So th this looks like an agenda that's in some respects coming back to bread and butter economic issues, which is bad for the Conservatives because their new coalition is very deeply divided over those bread and butter issues. But it's also an agenda that's not coming back to the early 2010s in terms of the salience of immigration, which is also bad news for the Conservatives because that was an issue that played to their advantage, at least initially, before UKIP came along. I mean, if I was to look at that issue agenda and say, well, where would I expect a, a, a minor party insurgency now? It wouldn't be a UKIP type party. It would, I'd be expecting the Greens to continue rising in the polls. Uh, Bobby or Paula, do either of you want to come in on this? You're welcome to. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think we, we are in a kind of phony period of the economic impact of COVID and that, that how that plays out and then unwinds with people is is going to be uh, crucial. But I, do, I don't think it um, I don't think it will shift the the political approach to keeping these cultural um, cultural issues quite central to the debate because of yeah, the great work that UK and Change Europe did on, on how close conservative um, politicians, activists, leaders are how much closer they are to the public, the average public opinion on those types of issues uh, compared to economic issues. And I think that that does set a lot of, lot of the tone. And I guess the, the challenge on those cultural issues will be the extent to which you can, you can give voice to uh, legitimate concerns about the speed of cultural change, which will continue on the back of, of those types of things, as opposed to uh, stirring it up a bit and 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 that that's going to be one of the key dynamics about how do, you, how do those things play out um, over the next few months as the economic impacts start to unwind because um, what you don't want is that to become a distraction tactic from economic bad news but in that in in, in that sense we've got a question in about this the 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 sort of the pandemic presumably helps hide some of the economics of 
Brexit. So does that, in a way, give the government a bit of a pass? And they've negotiated a Brexit deal that is going to have significant economic impact, but it so happens that at the same time, we have a, a, an emergence from lockdown that's going to have far more visible economic impacts in the short term. Does that, does that help, for the, as far as the government is concerned, avoid them taking responsibility for some of the implications of the Brexit decisions they've made in the eyes of the public? If I, if I could just give a bit more context, I guess, to the person's question a little. So it hasn't just hidden the economic impact of Brexit. It has, in, it has actually hidden or masked quite a lot of other impacts that people would have felt from Brexit. Mm. But things like travel and mobility, yeah. obviously people haven't been travelling or mobile as a result. And that would have been a major impact for people in parts of the UK that are currently saying they haven't really felt that impact. But also on food, um, we asked a question back in March about people's expectations around rising food prices and, uh, again, lack of supply through COVID as opposed to through Brexit. And so there's quite a bit of the impact for, of, for people of Brexit, not just the economic impact, which will be hidden and masked as a result of COVID. And that will only really come to light. And we pray to God that COVID passes, you know, the back end of this year, uh, early 2022. Mm. Anyone else want to come in? I think I'd just add one other thing to, to what everybody else has said, and that's even if we return to a more normal political agenda, we've still now got this set of identities that have been um, generated from Brexit. So we're still going to have that divide. People are still going to have those identities, and that will change how they respond to economic issues potentially. But it will also change how... Um, the government want to try and frame economic issues or even non-cultural issues. And we've seen that through some of the, I mean, you could argue that's the case with the um, education report yesterday, that that's an example of something where it's really about economics and spending on education, but it can be made to be about something else. And I think that's something that we're going to see going forward, that these two sets of values that, that define very distinctive groups, as, as Kelly's final slide showed, are going to start to be used and merged together in different ways when we when we start to talk about different issues again. And I don't think we can quite predict how that's going to play out. Mm. Interesting. Just, I mean, for you, Robin, if anyone else wants to chip in, they can. Linda Brooks asking, given that the salience of immigration has dropped so massively, is that because public opinion has changed? Have people have changed their views? Or is it because they think immigration has been taken care of because we left the European Union? or indeed because of the pandemic, I suppose? Um, it's a little bit of both, actually. Um, certainly we've seen pretty much from the moment of the referendum vote itself, a pretty sharp uh, shift in immigration attitudes across the board. So this isn't just a matter of salience. Uh, it's also, if you ask people what they think the economic impact of immigration is, what they think the uh, cultural impact of immigration is, people have become consistently more positive uh, about these things than they were in again say the early 2010s when when UKIP were taking off and that's actually on both sides of the Brexit divide as well it's quite a general um, shift uh, so certainly and incidentally if, if, for measures that we have going back further British voters are probably more positive uh, uh, about immigrants and more open on immigration policy than they have been at any point for which we have reliable 
data. So um, contra sometimes the Remain narrative about Britain becoming more inward looking and wanting to throw up uh, walls and fences, actually public opinion has never been more open and outward looking in that regard. Uh, however, part of the reason for that does seem to be that um, Leave voters in particular expect to get an immigration policy that, that better fits their preferences. But it's important to remember what that means in concrete terms. Aside from a small minority, it has never been the case that most of those who voted Leave wanted no immigration whatsoever. What they wanted was an immigration policy that was controlled by the national government and basically biased towards those with uh, stronger skills and better able to make an economic contribution. And that, in a kind of one-line one sort of tweet type uh, perspective, is, is what government's current immigration policy is. Um, so in that sense, we, we would expect that, they, that these kinds of leave voters would be happy because they're, they're getting what they want. But incidentally, it's also an immigration policy that most Remain voters are pretty happy with. Um, it's really just not the case that um, free movement, particularly over such a large and diverse area, was ever a particularly popular framework for doing immigration policy. And what we have now looks a bit more sustainable on both sides of the EU divide. And if anything, government policy now looks more restrictive than where the, 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 the public are. Uh, we're actually in a position where um, politicians campaigning for more liberal immigration policies, that could actually be a vote winner in the current context. Anyone else want to come in on the immigration issue? I should apologize for fiddling, but I've just realized that even though my laptop is plugged in, it's not charging. So there's 39% left. If I disappear, Paul, I'm... <laughs> You might have to be a, a, a panelist and a chair, but I have no idea why this thing isn't charging. But anyway, I'll try and I might turn my camera off in the next round of questions and try and figure out what's going on. Uh, we've got a question from Simon Sweeney, who says that, you know, he quotes John Curtis saying that basically opinions on leave and remain have barely shifted over the course of the last five years. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know whether any of you want to try this. Will they? Do you think, I mean, uh, what, what is liable to make people change their minds? Why hasn't opinions shifted? Uh, are there events you can think of that might, I mean, you know, for instance, the interesting chart you showed about vaccines. I mean, that's fascinating, isn't it? Because of the high number of Remainers who seem to think that being out of the European Union allowed us to respond better than the European Union. But Yeah, but similarly to John Curtis's data, all ours said that um, it doesn't look like things have shifted particularly, and it's not like there are huge swales of people wanting to try to rejoin the EU that, that didn't think that before. So we right. haven't seen shifts in data either. Um, and yes, there have been some positives, but there will also be, if we, if we ask people, irrespective of how you voted, what do you think some of the positives have been and what do you think some of the negatives have been, there's still a very much a hardcore of Remain voters who would say there are no positives and a hardcore of Leave voters who would say there are no negatives. And so those those blocks seem fairly, uh, fairly strong, actually. But they are um, okay. either ends. There's a special prize and a guaranteed clip on Twitter for anyone who starts their answer with John Curtis is talking rubbish on this. I can't see that happening. Right. <laughs> Does anyone else want to sort of, I mean, is this here, is this here for the foreseeable future then in its current form and people are not going to change camps, do we think? I mean, uh, I just wanted to, to make one small point, which is it's not just that it's it's here in broad brush terms. Uh, John's most recent uh, work with Natsen asked people how they would vote in a second referendum if the options were stay out and rejoin. 
and the figures were 52-48 in favour of stay out. The the, the curse ratio. I mean, it's like literally five years. We have not moved an inch in terms of how we split on that question. And I mean, I'm I'm with everyone else on this in that I think that there are deep reasons for that. These are deeply rooted identities. This is not a policy-based judgment. It's an identity-based judgment. And those are very hard to shift. It is. the One of the things I couldn't uh, unpick from that uh, article and data was whether or not he had just, they'd just gone back to people who did vote rather than include people who were not eligible to vote at that point in time. Um, and I couldn't tell that from the data set. And obviously that could make a relatively minor difference, but um, it was difficult to see. It included non-voters, but I don't, I don't know if it included not, like non-voters because they weren't old enough. Yeah, that's right. I couldn't tell, but um, it could be something to look into just and to make clear from that article. That always used to be one of the explanations John gave for the the, the, the with apologies, Kelly, YouGov data on right decision, wrong decision uh, was that actually the the data included people who weren't eligible to vote in 2016 who were being incorporated more, and that that accounted for the drift. But I don't know if it's the case. In this particular case, does anyone else want to come in on this sort of uh, lack of change in the numbers? I think just again to to refer to the data at the start, those kind of thermometer ratings of the opposite group, you're quite likely to swap to a group that you feel that level of animosity to. So I think that reinforces the fact that these are identity positions and therefore they're not likely to be ones that are, you know, overturned by the particularities of, of a deal or anything else that might happen between um, in, in the coming years. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that point is, and there is a, there is a difference on, in terms of the uh, differentiation or outgroup um, uh, animosity between in the direction it goes in terms of the, the Remain side being uh, more, uh, more negative about the Leave side. And that, that's, but then on the balance, and this is, this is the, the third element of polarization models about perceptual biases, the extent to which people's mm. reality is different. It's the Leib side who have uh, a, a more biased view of some key social realities about the impact of Brexit or positive aspects of being uh, of when we were in European Union. So you've got, there's, there's a number of different dimensions to why we are stuck. It's not just about identity in the sense mm. of I identify with this side. It's not just about differentiation. It's I don't like that side. It's also, it affects how we see realities. And once you're in a position like that, where all of those things are tied together and we're seeing the world quite differently, depending on what side we're on, that doesn't shift very much. That That is pretty solid. And I think, I guess, again, going back to the book, I think the main thing is it will continue to evolve and the key evolving aspect that we've got to look at is what other issues get rolled into it and what how do these identities attach to other identities and then how do those identities uh, the more identities you have rolled into this sense of we're on this side or that side the easier it is to activate them um, it, by pushing particular buttons and that's the us point about the more you activate them the stronger they become and that is the issue with uh, how it will evolve right? less about brexit itself and whether you're on one side or the other or whether you shift more about what does it bleed into to become this sort of sense of mega identity and that, mm-hmm. and that because that becomes self-fulfilling as a stronger and stronger identity that's interesting my computer's now telling me that if i want my battery to last i should turn off zoom which is really helpful <laughs> uh, <laughs> Anyway, there's a load of good questions coming. I mean, uh, the first one perhaps isn't a fair one. I'll put, I'll put it to you, and if no one feels comfortable answering it, 
Uh, I just wondered if any of you had seen any public opinion data about the impact of Brexit on European politics, which I'm going to take to mean public opinion in the other member states. What has been the impact of Brexit on that? Is anyone willing to? I should say, actually, uh, Chris, that if you want a, a meteor discussion about that, about the politics of the member states in particular, we've got an event tomorrow morning on the UK-EU relationship where that will come up explicitly. But is anyone willing to? Yep, Rob? Uh, very briefly, mate. Two two points, and it's not it's not my area of expertise compared to the people you've no doubt got lined up tomorrow. But um, the first is that in the short run, um, there was a very robust, I believe, um, bounce upwards in yeah. support for the EU across European member states, much of which I believe has endured. Mm -hmm. And secondly, we've also seen a kind of lasting impact on something I do know a little bit more about, which is the politics of the radical right. Around about the time of the referendum itself, people like Marine Le Pen, uh, people like Salvini in Italy, people like Wilders in the Netherlands were talking, you know, about uh, Frexit and Italexit and all sorts of other violations yeah. of the English language. Um, Grexit was another one. Um, that's all gone now. And I think it's, it's because, you know, populist radical right politicians, they, they follow pretty closely what their voters think. And, Clearly, even pretty nationalistic, even pretty Eurosceptic voters in most EU countries have taken a look at what's happened with Brexit and said, well, that's probably not the route to get what we want. Um, so there's been quite a change in that party family's attitude towards the EU. They're still Eurocritical, but they're not, you know, uh, I want to leave Eurocritical. Hmm. It does strike me that that's a crucial di uh, distinction between, you know, support for leaving versus liking of the European Union. Uh, so it might be in a sense that you end up with a with an EU population that doesn't want to leave because they've seen what that entails, but don't really like the European Union either, which actually doesn't meet, make for a particularly smooth ride for the European Union. Uh, it ends up looking a bit like a gilded cage. But uh, does anyone else want to come in on, on this particular question? There's a wonderful question here, which I'm going to give to you first, uh, Kelly, from Carol Hayden. What are anxious Remainers anxious about? Anxious about Brexit. They're anxious about they're they're waiting to see the problems arise. They they can find a few things that they can point to as positive outcomes, but they're still very much anxious about what all Brexit will entail. That's why they're anxious. Okay, that if you're I'm happy to take other names if you can come up with a better one. <laughs> and one from Michael Picken here, which I think is a good question, which is is there any real point talking about British public opinion anymore when you have four nations with fundamentally different public opinions? And it might give you a segue to talk briefly about the differences, if you wouldn't mind anyone. Yes, well, um, there are quite differences in opinion. From We, we did break it out for areas where are parts of the, the UK where we thought we could get a decent enough number to have a look. And there are quite big differences between people's views in Scotland versus England. And you can imagine what they would be. Um, and so I think whilst we're showing the overall GB data today, and I've shown you some of that, there are mm. some significant differences in, in, in people's views of how things are going. Uh, Scottish uh, less likely to say it's going well, almost akin to the Remain numbers, uh, and also on the importance of the relationship in future with the European Union. People in Scotland feel much more strongly about that as a top relationship for them comparatively to people in England. They're actually uh, increasing their support for things like the Commonwealth, um, though I would uh, hazard a guess that they may not be able to name all the countries in the Commonwealth. 
Before I turn to the others, and I will, is there what what was the figure on the vaccine? I don't know if you can remember this, Kelly. It's hor horribly unfair to ask. Seven people. and ten, sixty-eight uh, percent. Seven and ten. Um, In, who would who would who think that the UK? Oh, no, and for Scotland. Yeah. I don't know. I'd okay. Be interesting to know whether the Scots shared that view. But in terms of, of British politics more generally, is it a useful term if you're studying public opinion? I suppose this is Paula and Rob first and foremost. I mean, I suppose the size of England means that it, it sort of works. But well, I suppose that my my answer to this is is a kind of simplistic one in some ways, in that more often than not, when I start to do analysis of these of these things. Um, I restrict my sample to England. So, so I suppose not because I want to throw away the Scots and the Welsh and, and where the sample sizes allow, obviously you would look at them separately, but it because it is so different and it does make patterns and trends much more difficult to discern when you aggregate everybody together. That's often a starting point for analysis. And, and certainly on a, on a more substantive point, if you're doing any analysis which relies on some kind of measure of national identity, you, you simply can't just aggregate them together um, in any meaningful way. You have to work separately with them. Anything to add, Rob or Bobby, on this? I mean, I, I would echo that point on, on national identity. And, and of course, in Brexit land, we spent the whole chapter looking at how national identity plays out very differently in Scottish politics and has done, you know, well before Brexit, but Brexit has added to that. The only point I would add to that is that one reason, I mean, Wales is a sort of a, a slightly awkward customer in this, but in terms of England, Scotland and Northern Ireland, the constitutional debate into which Brexit plays is different in each of those cases so in, in England it's a straightforward like uh, tug of war between the UK and the EU but in Scotland it is layered on top of that is Scottish independence now seen as mm. a route back in to the EU and in Northern Ireland of course Brexit has um, been sort of awkwardly fitted into uh, a you know very deep and long-standing constitutional argument that goes back generations uh, and now you have the additional issues of the the Irish border and the border in the Irish Sea and all the rest of it uh, laid on top of that and the prospect of a potential reunification referendum um, and we can see I mean we've been seeing just this week the extraordinary disruptive impact it's having on Northern Irish politics so it's it's not just that the identities are different the arguments within which Brexit is understood are also very very different in the three contexts Wales is probably the outlier in that regard but that could also change if Welsh devolution comes onto the agenda more strongly just a quick sort of technical question for you Kelly, I suppose, uh, from Christine Eberall saying, are you using uh, online opinion polls, which therefore won't cover people without internet access? Uh, amongst those people, I include myself and my non-charging laptop. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a good question. So I think at the minute there's around 4% of the UK population who are properly offline. And the data we've shown you today is uh, the online population. We do also collect data offline um, and we have a, a panel that allows us to do that using gift providing uh, small tablets to people that only allows them to do the survey so it doesn't change their behaviour. Um, but yes, this data is online. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. Uh, We've got an interesting question here, just picking up on the survey results, just pointing out that hardly anyone is saying that Brexit has made their life better. Uh, will this have implications down the line politically, do we think? 
And actually, Paul, you can talk about our Guardian article. I could. <laughs> <laughs> so potentially, yes. Some of the research that we've done and, and others have done suggests that leave voters in particular, although they ne didn't necessarily articulate them in very specific outcomes, had high expectations of change as a result um, of Brexit. And if they're not feeling that change, then that might lead to a certain amount of, of dissatisfaction or, you know, um, disengagement with politics, perhaps, you know, we made this huge decision and still nothing changed might, might be the outcome. Um, so I think there is a potential for that, but I, I don't think we can quite say yet how people are feeling that, whether they will feel that they would have felt this out, you know, they would have felt these positive benefits if COVID hadn't happened. And actually that's kind of meant that Brexit hasn't been able to bring the things they expected. There's plenty of scope for people to um, engage in some motivated reasoning around that, I think, um, as we emerge from the pandemic. So I don't think, I don't think we know quite how these things are going to play out, but there is a danger there of um, a significant number of disappointed leavers um, that, may just turn away from politics altogether or may swing around between different parties again. This session is turning into a real vote of confidence in King's College IT, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> let's plough on. Uh, Rob, did you want to come in on this? Um, I had just one additional thought on that, which is it feels like, I mean, I like these questions and I think that what Paula says is, 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 is absolutely right. And that, 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 that's one way it could play out. Um, but another way it could play out is that these questions are kind of a category error in a sense that that actually people didn't really vote for or against Brexit based on what they expected Brexit to deliver or not to deliver um, in terms of, you know, it, it wasn't like a consumer vote. It wasn't like I wanted slightly lower food prices or I wanted, uh, you know, a trade deal with Australia. It was it was an expressive vote uh, about uh, wanting to have a particular set of political arrangements changed. I mean, the, the way I would analogize it is if we went and did like um, an Ipsos Mori um, DeLorean poll of um, American voters in 1801, would they say that they were better or worse off from having left um, the UK? If we went and asked the Dutch when they left um, the Habsburg Empire whether or not they were better or worse off, in many cases the answer would typically be we're worse off because of all sorts of things. Uh, I mean, certainly if they were being, if they were actually observing economic reality, and of course Bobby would tell us a lot of them wouldn't be anyway, um, they would say, well, we're not really much better off, but that's not the point. And I suspect with a lot of voters on Brexit, particularly on the Leave side, if you gave them the option, yeah, I'm not better off, but that wasn't the point, they probably would plump for that option quite often. Um, and, and I think that there's that that makes sense in terms of what the motivations actually were. But that that's sort of um, the sentiment that we saw around the vaccination programme is a real statement of national pride. And you can see that Leave voters at this point in time, when asked, will have something to point to where they perceive that Brexit has been a key defining factor in driving a positive outcome for the people in the UK. Um, it's just that will fade eventually as a positive outcome. And so government will have to work very hard to create other positive. There's, I don't think they will find something quite as bright and shiny as that vaccination programme. That's going to be very hard to compete with. Um, but certainly if you ask a Leaver on the street today, I think they'll be able to point to that. Bobby, uh, I hope your internet is now functioning. <laughs> uh, the question I'm going to put to you first, and I am going to turn my camera off in a sec because my power is getting perilously low and I need to figure out what's going on here. But uh, 
and actually you all want to come in on this, I think, is, but why has level of education become a central divide? And the question goes on, what is it about higher education that liberalises? Now, it might be that you, you want to dispute the premise of that second part of the question, but why, why is education now a key divider? That's a really good question. I mean, I, I, I come at that for, I just finished writing a book, which I don't have one to hold up because it's literally just finished um, on generational differences. And it is, um, it's just a remarkable change. When you look at, I, I've been plotting generational lines, synthetic cohort lines that track people back into the 70s or 80s. So it's not actual longitudinal research, but it's just recreating those uh, cohort lines by looking at when people were born rather than their age. And it tells these incredible stories of change uh, in attitudes, values, um, identities, those types of things, but also in real um, real uh, outcomes and, and uh, life outcomes for people. And the, the, one of the most remarkable lines, there's, there's loads of remarkable lines in generational change about how we've just utterly deflected millennials uh, and a big chunk of Gen X from house owner, home ownership and all of those types of things, things that you just couldn't have predicted and seen, particularly from the path that we thought each cohort was on. But this, the, the line on um, higher education participation uh, among uh, millennials is just incredible. And, but you can kind of trace it in the Gen X line as well, just directly to policy choices around Tony Blair's um, focus on the 50%. And it just, you get this immediate bump uh, and then an incredibly different sort of um, uh, life course for millennials. It just, it just steep takeoff until you got to the, this level. So it is one of the big cultural change, you know, cultural and, and real life changes that we've lived through that we haven't really paid masses of attention to in, in many ways. I mean, it has been a feature of life for lots of people, but it hasn't really potentially had the, the focus that it deserved for something so big. You just don't see changes, changes like that. Very different from the US, for example, which is uh, a much longer standing investment in higher education for among the public, but much shallower lines with not that sort of steep change. So when you see big, big changes like that, it's bound to have a knock on effect in terms of um, uh, differences in views, differences in opinions uh, that affect politics and, and social and cultural things overall. So I, I think it's inevitable that education has become a uh, such a core aspect of uh, what differentiates us and, and and you know the mechanics by which that works is you know, there's loads and loads of good work on how does that happen what what the socializing effects of um education higher education that goes beyond what you're taught to the environment that you're in and the the diversity of contact of different people that you come into there's lo loads of good evidence on how that's a that's a whole package of effects that changes worldviews for people not everyone but on average across those types of things so i i think yes in terms of polling and understanding public opinion underweighted in in the thinking x x years ago 10 years ago um at relative to this demographic change that we've seen, but then all of the understanding of public opinion did catch up with that pretty quickly. And it has become a key feature. Um, and I, I, I uh, yeah, and I think um, from a policy point of view going forward, what, what uh, government does on that about the support for higher education and, and then uh, how do you get that to work for more of the population with through further education and more technical education is, it, both a key 
policy choice and a political choice. And, and there is going to be that balance between those two things, what you're trying to achieve and what does it mean for uh, political opinions too. And that's all that's going to get really messy and tied up together. Uh, but when you see these big changes, it's bound to have these knock-on effects. And, and uh, what we, I, think, I think we've really found is we, in going for that one bold goal, uh, we've probably taken our attention too much off the people that don't fit into uh, that higher education mold. And that, that is uh, yeah, a, a key thing to uh, sort out for both from a policy point of view, but will have a big impact on political opinions too. Let me just warn you, particularly uh, you, Paula, that all I've achieved is to lose 5% more from my battery, <laughs> my, my tinkering. Uh, and I have, before anyone asks, yes, I have turned the cricket off. I've turned everything off, but I'm not going to make, I don't think this computer is going to make it through uh, the next 20 minutes. So when I disappear, so A, let me thank you in advance and B, let's keep going with this. Because I imagine Paula, Rob and Kelly, someone's going to have something to say about this educational divide. So anyone else want to chip in on this? It's such a big deal. I think we've probably all got things to say, but I'll chip in some. I happened to be thinking about this um, yesterday in the context of the education report that came out. And I've spent all my time in higher education also working on widening participation initiatives that have been going on the entire, you know, for at least the last 20 years. And during those, one thing that always comes through in the data is the extent to which we've increased participation without widening it as much as we would like to have done. And I think what that's done within the wider society, so to bring it back to the kind of public opinion point, is it's meant that for those young people whose parents went to university or whose parents have particular sorts of resources, it is now absolutely normal to go to higher education. And in some of those circles, they literally won't know anyone not going into higher education. And that then polarizes them from the other group who, for whom going to higher education is a huge deal and, and not the normal path at all. And I think that's something we haven't perhaps grappled with as much as we could have done in terms of how that's pushed the different life experiences, the polarization and so on that we've seen in our society and in our politics. Alongside that, I'd also just want to make a point about when we talk about young people and politics, we almost always talk about young people with degrees in politics and actually political participation amongst young people who don't go into higher education, which is about 50% of 18 year olds, is yeah. really, really low. It's only about one in three who vote many of whom are not even represented in public opinion surveys. So we get quite a skewed perception of what young of, of what's happening in terms of young people and politics, because we're focusing just on that one group. Um, I could say lots more about why education liberalizes, um, but perhaps I can pick that up at another time. People can ping me on Twitter if they want more on that. Yeah, I've, I've also got a fair number of things to say about this. Uh, the, the emergence of education divides is a big theme in the book that I was waving around uh, a little while earlier. I'll resist the urge to wave it around again. Um, but I, I think a few of the points I'd like to make are firstly, education divides us on, on many, many of the new issues that have come to define our politics. Um, and one of the reasons those new issues have come to define our politics is, is not because those divides are new, but because the demographic calculus has changed you know degree holders were liberal in 1964 
but there weren't very many of them and therefore it wasn't particularly important that there were a lot more liberal than school leavers they're now 35 percent of the electorate and that rises by about a percentage point every year and a half or so so now it really place a very small kid on the seesaw with a very large kid on the seesaw the the, the dynamics of the seesaw change uh, and that will continue um, uh, one other thing I do want to say on it as well is there's a side to education divides which I've talked a lot about in, in my work which is about how they divide us on attitudes to do with national identity immigration in-group outgroups and all this kind of thing and that's very important but there's also another way in which education divides us which uh, I think is I've discussed less and I think is less discussed in Britain although it's been discussed a lot in the US which is that degree holders and school leavers do political decision making in very different ways uh, degree holders are more ideological, they're more informed, they're more politically engaged. And so their politics is much more kind of coherently agenda driven, whereas um, school leavers, um, they're much uh, less of all of those things. So they can be much more driven by personality, they can be much more driven by, you know, a simple outgroup antipathy and you, you saw this playing out over and over again in the Brexit divide where the the endless refrain of graduate remainers would be why don't they know these things uh, about this and if only they knew these things they would behave differently which is you know a, a, a assuming that the other side of the uh, of the coin makes political decisions in the same way that they do and that assumption very often doesn't hold up so it's not just a difference in attitudes it's a difference in decision making processes too that is so interesting thank you i mean that's a very specific kelly did you want to come in on this i mean i, I think there's been enough said and i don't i think i'll i mean actually the one thought i had is we should just do an event on this and have this conversation in full because uh, it's so interesting but there's a very specific question i don't know if anyone's got the answer to it but uh, does the public have an opinion on the impact of Brexit on Northern Ireland? Does, is the public paying attention, the British public, which we just decided we might not want to talk about, how much interest is there on the sort of Brexit impacts on Northern Ireland? And of course, by extension, of course, in, in Scotland as well. Is there any evidence about this? I think historically when we've polled, the English don't have an awful lot of interest in Northern Ireland um, yeah. in general. So having an interest in it and a very specific issue, probably so not, so not so much. Katie Hayward's work actually with the Northern Ireland Life and Times study shows you the Northern Irish people's view on it. Yeah. Um, but I, I haven't seen anything on England's view. Okay, well, uh, don't know who wants to take this one. Gordon Brown says he wants the UK to rejoin the EU. Should the Labour Party adopt this as a policy? I'll take it and take it in a slightly different direction, if that's okay. That's fine. <laughs> so, and it builds out from, from the data. So what, what Kelly's data showed us was that there are large proportions of people who think that there will still be some kinds of negotiations, either the remainers I know are much more, there's, there's a whole lot of stuff to be done, but even the leavers, the majority of them are either in that there's a lot of stuff or there's some stuff to be done. So whilst I don't, think it would be electorally successful at this point for Labour to be campaigning to rejoin the EU. Um, whether or not it's morally the right thing to do is a whole different question, but electorally I don't think it would be successful. But there is, I think, space there to be saying things that are critical of 
the deals that have been struck and there are things there to say we could negotiate this differently we could do that differently and it looks from the data as if even amongst leave voters that wouldn't necessarily come as a shock or a surprise that people were wanting to try and do the deal differently trying to negotiate things still and um, so I think there's some space there potentially um, for Labour and perhaps even some potential potentially good news for the party that it doesn't look as if they have to kind of carry on with you know don't mention the brexit kind of kind of position that um has been going on for a while anyone else want to come in on this rejoin labor i mean i, I just make one brief point because i flagged up that 52 48 poll about rejoin versus stay out i mean firstly <laughs> You know, you're starting from behind again, uh, and uh, the geography of how you'll be behind is the same geography that's tortured Labour for the last five years. So it's like, do you want to willfully re-enter the torture chamber you just left is probably not necessarily a question that many Labour leaders would answer eagerly, yes. But there's a second reason, I think, to be sceptical on it, which is the question has the implicit assumption this referendum is happening, whether you want it or not. Now, how will you vote? And there's a pretty substantial part of the electorate, I think, which much like many of the senior Labour Party uh, people, would, when presented with this notion, would think, oh, goodness, no, anything but that. I don't want another five years of arguing about this. So I, I think that Labour would have a job to do just to get voters to see this as something that they wanted to, to argue about again, and that that would be quite a big job. And, yeah. you know, Gordon Brown likes a political challenge. Well, that's a big one he's just given himself to try and convince voters that what they really want is another five years of arguing about another referendum. Richard Corbett sent us a question, which is a really good question, I think, for the day of the anniversary of, of the referendum, which is that some politicians at least claimed at the time that the British public would just rally behind the results of the referendum because we'd voted in the referendum. That was that. So I suppose... The, the first question that comes out of this for, for you four is, were you surprised by what happened to public opinion after the referendum? Did any of you expect once we'd had that referendum, the British people would just shrug their shoulders and say, well, look, we voted for it, so we better do it? No. Would any of you like to amplify on the shake of the head? <laughs> You only really needed to be watching what happened in Scotland to know that that was a yeah. quite unlikely outcome. Um, and we've seen that this tapped into some deep-seated divides. It wasn't a, a kind of simple policy choice per se. And, and something that taps into those divides is never likely to be given up easily on either side. And then you add into that a very, very close result. I think it was unlikely that people were ever just going to get on board with it. Um, from, from the from the day of the result at least you might you might conceivably have thought that um before the result but afterwards it didn't it didn't yeah. seem likely or indeed the tone of the campaign and how divisive that campaign was i mean i i would say like i, I was surprised by by two things and, and kelly or bobby might correct me on this but my recollection is that in the early wake of the referendum say second half of 2016 for First half there was a pretty substantial section of the Remain vote who said, well, I didn't, I didn't vote for this, but I think we need to do it mm. now. That was also quite a widely expressed view in parts of the, the Labour Party and the Conservative Party that the Remain needed to start with. And I guess the two things that have surprised me about the five, past five years is how rapidly that diminished as an argument um, and, and how intense the resulting polarisation 
proved to be. Um, uh, so in a sense, we did end up with get Brexit done being a winning argument, but I'm surprised it wasn't a winning argument a bit earlier in the process, perhaps. And partly that could just be past dependency because of the weak uh, May government with no majority kind of opening the door to relitigating everything. But I felt like there was a, I don't really, it's not what I ordered, but I'm going to accept it um, segment of the public that kind of seemed to disappear quicker than I would have expected. Yeah, I think it might be partly related to the, the nature of the the retreat from a more connected to EU deal. And I think over time people got, um, uh, you know, see, seeing this as a is, is more of a marker of a particular ideology or a, a, a view that is is quite different from the, theirs um, on this. But I, I mean, I guess the thing that didn't hasn't really. Well, I think the thing that surprised, I suppose, is I think we all kind of got that this is revealing and then reinforcing uh, and it's extant cultural division that's um, that we'd got to see particularly you know Rob your brilliant work on immigration and Paula on values and over the time you could see that um, coming together but I just I don't I don't know that particularly saw this then rolling into other values divides and and uh, and the extent to which you start to get that as a, in, in the US literature, they call it conflict extension, where you've got one part of polarization and then you, you, you just tack on another bit and then another bit and uh, mm. suddenly you've got this mega identity thing. And it's that, that element of it um, is, it shouldn't have been a surprise, but it's probably, it, could we have predicted back then, we're gonna be talking about a culture war you know, almost endlessly by 2020, 2021. And I probably wouldn't have said that, but probably should have thought that, that we're on this polarisation track now that ends in culture wars, if you just look across to, to the US. And that's that's the start of the process. We don't have the religious divisions um, that they have in the US as a basis for this. Now we've created one and we are, we are rolling that in. And I'm uh, so I suppose that was... It's it's not so much the longevity or the depth of those types of things. It's more the extension of it, I suppose, is the surprise mm. that shouldn't have been a surprise to us. There's, uh, sorry, Kelly, did you want to come in? Well, I just I thought if you're only running, you've only five minutes left to end on that negative note may, may be a bummer. But um, I just thought also worth reinforcing, though, that whilst those two polarised uh, views have, all, have lasted and um, we also have this really sizable group in the middle that I mentioned in the presentation who are still waiting to see how Brexit turns out, who haven't made up their mind, who have uh, not necessarily got a very strong Brexit identity either. And so there's this sizable group in the middle who are still very movable in uh, in what we call the culture war debate, which is uh, definitely where we're heading in 2021. There's been a couple of questions, and these might be questions to round us off, uh, on the sort of age differential, let's say younger people being more pro-remain, older people being more pro-leave. And a couple of people go on to say, if that is still the case, that there is that age divide, doesn't that somehow alter how we think about the issue of rejoining in the future? Because these younger people are... Uh, 
you know, more and more of them will be eligible to vote, that the sort of de overall demographic makeup of the population will change. Doesn't that mean that we're going to drift towards being more positive about the European Union? I know you like talking about age cohorts, Rob, so I will let you have a go at this in a minute. But uh, who, who, who would like to go first on this? But A, is it still a big division by age? And B, if that is the case, doesn't that mean... Uh, I mean, it always reminds me of this of the argument that the Republicans have no future in US politics because of demographics for mm -hmm. the last 20 years, as far as I can remember. But is there some truth to this? I can, I can have a go and then it's, it is in that same age period cohort effect point that Rob, Rob covers, but it is effectively what I've been looking at in the generational book in the US and the, the, the UK. And there is, there is definitely a, a life cycle effect that shifts people as well as um, age and age, uh, uh, there's a, definitely an age effect as well as a cohort and period effect that these things um, shift around. So, yeah, the prediction of we've, we've got a coalition of the ascendant in the US and then in the UK that's going to change uh, the uh, the balance of opinion on things like this has always been made and then is always less powerful than you think because we tend to focus on one of those three effects and that quite often is the cohort effect that we've got a different set of young people coming through but they do change as they age and period effects shocks can intervene to take the the edge of that so i do i think that is why um we see the same sort of so if, we, if you track the attitudes to immigration of gen x uh, whether they're in favor or against immigration for gen x and you, you start with the same age group back in the 90s. So start with the 18 to 29 year olds in the 90s. They're the same group in the 90s, that kind of Gen X and 18 to 29 year olds. But then you track them through time, looking at 18 to 29 year olds versus Gen X, and they slowly drift apart as Gen X is aging and taking a different perspective on these things. And, and being ref the 18 to 29 year old group is being refreshed by new 18 to 29 year olds with, with a, a different sort of attitude. So it's definitely a blend of those types of things, which takes the edge off and all the predictions of um, uh, the, the dem demography as destiny and the decline of the conservatives or Republicans always is not quite as dramatic as, as it is made out to be. And it will be the same uh, on this with, uh, with Brexit and more generally that kind of cultural change concern. We have two minutes and I have 5%. Who wants to go next? I could go quickly. Uh, I just, just, just while Bobby was, was making those very smart points, I had half remembered that I addressed this issue of demographic change and what it would mean for the EU referendum in a piece for some blokes called the UK and a changing Europe. Absolutely. Yeah. And I said that come 2021, the public would be split 52, 48 in favour of Remain because of demographic changes since the referendum. The new uh, Natsen report has the public 53, 47 in favour of Remain. But that's not the question anymore. And then it goes 52-48 in favour of staying out when the question is asked in terms of rejoin or stay out. Because now stay out is the status quo and you get some status quo bias there. So the question changes, number one. Um, actually, number one, I was right. I made a prediction that it was right. So I should say that because that doesn't happen very often. Um, number two, the question has changed. So demographic change has to work against that. But number three... You're right, and a lot of people have lost a lot of political capital by pointing at demographic changes and saying the destiny uh, we face politically is X. But that 
and we, we argue this very strongly in Brexit land, that, that makes a fundamental mistake, which is it assumes that political parties are passengers in that process rather than having some capacity to steer that process. Parties know uh, that demographic change is happening and they can seek to adapt arguments and positions to adjust to it. So even if we continue to move to a more graduately heavy, heavy, graduate heavy, ethnically diverse electorate, there are things that the, that the Conservative and Labour Party can do in order to continue to be the relatively social conservative party and the relatively socially liberal party, because the positions they take aren't fixed in concrete for all time. So... I personally do think that we will become more socially liberal, but I don't think it's going to result necessarily in a fundamental change of the arguments because I think political parties have a lot of adaptive capacity. In fact, the, the, the story of the past seven years with the Conservative Party is don't underestimate the ability of the Conservative Party to adapt to a changing environment. Wonderful. Paul, would you like to have the last word? Kelly's had to go. Uh, she's got another meeting now. The only thing I would just add to, to the points that Bobby and Rob have made is that what looks like a really large age differential actually is being conflated with the education changes that we were just discussing. And there are age effects. I don't want to say there aren't age effects, but they are smaller than they sometimes appear once you take education into account as well. And that's where remembering that group of young people who don't go into higher education and often don't feature in online panels is really important for thinking about how those changes move through. Brilliant. Well, it is a minute past. I now have 1% left. So let me very, very quickly thank, well, the four of you, Kelly's gone, uh, Rob, Bobby and Paul. That's been utterly fascinating. I think we should just do it again, actually, down the line, because this is obviously public opinion isn't going to go away. Uh, for those of you watching who want more, we've got two events tomorrow. One, I think, in the late morning, 11, 11.30, something like that. Uh, which is on the future of the UK-EU relationship with a very, very good panel. And then we've got our In Conversation with David Frost. That'll work well if my power goes with two people, uh, which is, I think, at six o'clock in the evening. So I think you can still sign on for both of those. Please do uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Do not talk to me about cricket ever again. Lovely. Thank you all very much indeed. <laughs>